Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. I've got Sienter and Dusty with me, and we're continuing the Highway to the Moon sets, and uh, specifically today's topic, tool-based design, or rather, tool-based development. Uh, there's a slight difference between the two of those, but it's a uh, design of tools for tool-based development. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I'd say that's about good. So with that in mind, the first statement is like, so when you're building a system, why build tools? First, you have to say what tool is, uh, so I'll go ahead and define it. A tool is a piece of software that is used to do stuff for the game development. For example, one of our important tools was the enemy editor, which allowed us to edit files for making enemies. Many other things as well. Uh, it was this. We had a trend with the tools on Highway to the Moon. Yeah, everything had a everything had a name, <laughs> and then quickly got out of hand into other parts of the program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like they all did the thing that their name was about, but it, usually it was that was limited compared to what the full scope of the program was. I would say that most of them ended up being like twenty five percent, twenty five to thirty percent of whatever their name was, and then it was like four other things that were all really kinda you know, like ten to fifteen percent of the tool. So so it might have been the largest thing that tool did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. Like most of the if anything, most of our tools were technically technically multi tools because they just had all sorts of other functionalities interred within them that really didn't have any business being interred there. But hey, hey, <laughs> that's just about the road script in the UI editor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, we only had four. Uh, what was it? Th no, well, technically, we only had three. So, <laughs> so we had, uh, in the end, three main tools. Uh, yeah. The enemy editor, uh, the road scripter, and the UI editor. Uh, those are what they were called. Now, what they did, the uh, the enemy editor did, in fact, allow you to edit enemies, um, but also sort of defined what a graphics file looked like. Uh, not the visual appearance of it, but the way that it would, uh, what the sprite sheet breakdown would look like, how quickly it animated, um, that sort of thing, how big it was in the game, mm -hmm. uh, as well as a collection of those into physics and objects and the physics on them and sprites, which the is a collection AI. of graphics. Uh, the AI, which is a huge part of it, which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. Oh, yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, weapons, uh, power-ups, uh, things like that. Yeah. Um, the road scripter did, in fact, allow you to write the scripts for the road, but it also lets you draw the graphics for the road, uh, define the physics for a road, um, some other details about the road. Uh, like parallax layers, things like that, and also randomly contained the player sprite editor. Um, there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember that now. Yeah, that, it, back then it didn't seem so weird. It just, no. it just seemed well, like it was one of the evolution of the program. It and made then... <laughs> perfect sense because the original design of the road scripter required you to assign the player sprite based upon the level. So theoretically, you'd play level one as this player, and then level two as this player, and then level three as this player. Um, and then that got became something that could be defined elsewhere. Yes. Um, that's, but we just didn't want to move the all the tooling from one, right. you know, one executable well, to another. There's no reason to move the player sprite editor, so it just stayed in the road scripter. Um, the UI editor also contains support not only for UI stuff, which it does, uh, UI screens, HUDs, elements, those sorts of things, but also defines stuff like the special options, which is used for something called the reality alternator, uh, which allows you to dynamically change aspects of how the game plays. Well, dynamically is a little strong. It lets you set it before each uh, play session. 
like uh, sliders for things like enemy drop rates, stuff like that. Well, yeah, like those are the simple a, ones. There's a, a lot, lot of more them are toggles. Yeah, a, a lot of them are actually toggles, but it it allows you to adjust various properties of the game. Um, so you can kind of dynamically craft your own difficulty level about you know what you want for for that. Um, it it also time. defined the achievements the achievements list. It defined also the master file, which is a very important file. One of the things that happens when you're making a tool-centered design like this is you have to have some way of telling the game what is its data. So there are different ways of doing this. You could, for example, uh, use like a WAD, like what Doom uses, where it's just like, hey, I'm looking for WADs within this directory, and oh, here's a bunch of WADs, we'll load these ones. Um, or you can use a specific fo- file name, uh, like what StarCraft, for example, does, the, the original one I uh don't know what the second one has done, but the original one uh, looked specifically at patch underscore rt dot mpq to load up patch information. Um, so, you know, changes to unit properties and things like that. What the master file was for Highway to the Moon was it was the file that told the game engine what the stuff was. What did it need? What did it use? And it did this mostly by how things linked up. So basically, the game engine says, okay, I have the master file called masterfile.hal. All of them are called that because that's what the name it was looking for was. And then that would tell it things like, here is the reticle that you give the player for doing things like using menus and attacking or whatever. Uh, What are the sound effects you play when the player dies? What are the properties of the different playable characters? Uh, And then... What is the main menu? Which which is kind of important because then the game's like, okay, I load up the main menu. When I start the game, I load up these. This is the initial UI screen that I load, so I know the file name that I then need to load. So it's the point of entry uh, for the whole system. And so that was a very important file. It defined a lot of stuff and basically controlled the game. And that was in the UI editor because... <laughs> it, it, was, it was there because, well, where else was it going to be? Well, it was... I mean, it could have been in the Rose Scripter or the Enemy Editor, but it, it, it was there. It was there. There were potentially more logically named tools for it to exist in. Technically, um, we probably should have just created a singular suite and then just built things out of it. But as it was, we had different people working on different things. And yeah. so different people just built different EXEs and worked from there. And different stuff came up at different times also. Um, there were a couple of other random utilities. Uh, the Dialogue Bubble Maker, which was used for making dialogue bubbles. That way I didn't have to sit there watching Red Coat stitch them together painstakingly in paint.net. It was a very, very meticulous process. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was the physics collision checkbox thing that basically said these types can collide with these types. That was a highly specialty program. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the modulizer, which was used to compile the game into a singular file. A campaign file is what we called them. And then it, there was the... Uh, oh, what was it? Was the animation scripter? What was that thing called? Um, well, there's the sprite shooter. The, the sprite shooter. Which uh, was for making sprite sheets uh, out of individual frames. There was... Uh, I feel like there was some other random program, but it's eluding me. But there's a bunch of other sort of smaller utilities that got used every now and then. But the the workhorse ones were definitely the uh, enemy editor, the uh, road scripter, and the, the UI, UI editor. editor. Which makes a lot of sense when you're making a shmup. I mean, all you've really got is the ground underneath you, your enemies, and the UI upon which you're going to play and whatever particular... Yeah systems that your character has to interact with the world. That's really all there is. Everything else is incidental. Uh, yeah. 
But yeah, thinking about all of these, like, because you've got you've gone over a few of the portions, like you went over the master file in pretty pretty right. big detail here. Mm-hmm. And I think the, some of the cooler things that showed up in the tools, like on the enemy editor, I feel like the AI development there was just that was one of the the strongest points of the of those tools. It was also one of the strongest points. Of, well, Sea uh, Tears is the one that, that did most of the AI backend and AI AI tooling. It was also probably one of the best best points in the actual engine itself was the way all the AI was built. Yeah, I'm I'm very pleased with how the AI system came together. So a little bit of additional backstory. Some of the goals with making tools is to allow non-programmers to make the game. Yeah, um, i.e. Redcoats. Yeah, <laughs> pe- people like Redcoat, um, but also other people that came on and worked on it. And the point of the AI editing section of the uh, enemy editor was to allow non-programmers to make AI and have a lot of customization power there. So it ended up being a very modular system, made it very easy to add stuff to it, and it was a fortunate design in many ways. It's similar to, in concept, the uh, StarCraft Brood War trigger editor for anybody who's used that. The basic idea is that you define a condition that causes it to trigger, and then when it triggers, what it does when it triggers. So, for example, you could say, hey, when I have reached, say, less than this amount of health, or I've gotten to this location do this thing and or this set of things. And so chaining those together allowed you to be able to make fairly complicated AI. And then AI was tacked on to a lot of things because anything that was basically an enemy could have it. And bullets were a variant on enemies. So that meant our bullets could have AI, which meant they could do things like give themselves a gun and start shooting. Yeah, basically anything that moved could be moved and wasn't the road itself or could you know interact with the world had AI in some form. The player being the exception to that. Oh, well, I mean, if you include the fact that if you include his guns, the guns have they're not quite AI. I don't. They were the well, gun editor. The bullets. But, the bullets do have AI. But though. the bullets have AI. Yeah, so yeah. anything that was made, anything that interacted. Um, technically, you could actually add a component to the player to give him AI. It just would be really obnoxious because the player couldn't do anything. It or, depends well, upon you what could it did. because you. They'd be fighting against each other. Yeah. So I, I remember an experimental weapon that I made where an AI would be tacked onto the player that forced the player to move left. Yes. <laughs> that was... It was terrible. It was It was awful. For a, a, there was a particular attack that... Um, it was a workaround to allow enemies to push the player. We ended up scrapping that. Because it's absolutely obnoxious. <laughs> it, it played obnoxious. poorly. It, it was obnoxious. <laughs> but we could do it, which was kind of the cool thing. And there's a lot of power in that system, so that's something that I'm very pleased by. And uh, as Dusty was alluding to, the engine side of that was uh, something that I'm particularly pleased with as well. It's a neat piece of programming. That system ended up serving us very, very well on this. Yeah, and I mean, there were a lot of there were a lot of interesting things with working that with that system. I know as a designer, I learned a lot of lessons just working on it, partially in the sense of. You know, actually talking to your programmers, because I was not used to, well, first off, A, I wasn't used to being able to speak and then be listened to. It was a very, it was a very different situation. As you know, I was coming out of um, doing a lot of testing work, and before that, you know, all of my teamwork with, like, student teams and such, it was a very... It was a very different situation, whereas, like, you 
yeah, you could ask for something, but what were the time constraints? What could you actually ask for? Uh, in this situation, it was more the idea of not so much that the sky is the limit. Um, I mean, you still have certain things that you shouldn't ask for, where it's just like, yeah, that's a, that's a huge undertaking. But you at least have that situation where you can say, okay, this is really bugging me about how to do this. This is really slowing down my ability to make things happen. And then you voice that, and the programmer's like, well, actually, we already have an, something in here for <laughs> doing that. I just didn't flip the switch. Do you want me to flip the switch? It's like, oh, well, sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh, Dragon Coder and I having to spend a bit of time training Red Coat on. We're right here, man. We're right here. <laughs> yeah, you can T ask. Turns out the big difference between being in a large group with hundreds of people and a small group with four people is when you have four people on the team, you can walk up to one of them and say, "Hey, Bob." Do this thing! And they'll generally do it, or at least they'll tell you why they can't. Yes, yes. Yeah. But you need to tell them. <laughs> yeah. I remember there's one poignant memory related to this that I have that is a good lesson for anybody making a tool or some other interface. And I remember I was adding a, an aspect to the AI editor that allowed you to be able to add favorited actions because it turned out we had something in the end like 100 to 200 actions roundabout yeah i think it was over 150 different actions it was some ridiculously huge number and the problem with that is you have certain actions you're using all the time and trying to sort through that list to find the specific one that you want like you could start typing in the name but even then but nobody remembers the name <laughs> right like that was part of it right because often people would be like hey i want to do thing x and it's like yeah it's called y um <laughs> but Anyway, I added a favorites list where you could put your favorited actions so that we could be like, okay, I just click on this button and there is multiple actions, for example, which should have been the default behavior, but that was another uh, <laughs> yeah. early mistake. Uh, it, it always shocks me when I look at the code and see just how late that was added, relatively speaking. T mm -hmm. Turns out in AI, you're always going to do X and Y. You're never just going to do X and stop. Yeah. It never happens. It, very rarely. <laughs> anyway, um, so I was going through and, and adding the dialogue for putting things on the list or taking things off. And so I'm a shortcuts kind of guy. I, I use shortcut keys a lot. So I had set it up to be a couple of shortcut keys that you hit to take things on or off. And so I was like, okay, done. Uh, get it distributed to everybody. And then I watched Redcoat furiously mashing his mouse trying to get items to move over. And I'm like, oh, Huh. And then I, I took a little bit of a look at things. I'm like, okay, double click, actually pretty easy to do. I'm still getting a feel for the full capacity of C Sharp at the time. So I added that, and suddenly it worked in the way that Redcoat expected it to, and it made life a lot easier for him. Yeah. There were many moments like that where it's just like doing a thing, and like I was always used to the idea of like, well, this is the thing I have, so I just need to make this work, right? I'll just figure out how to make this work, and then I'll just go with it that way. But it would be like, I'd be doing that, and then invariably, Santer or Dragon Coder would show up and be like, dude, dude, you don't have to do that. It's like, there's, there's, there's a better way. Or rather, or even... We'll that, fix it. Yeah, it's like, uh, that, you shouldn't have to do that. Hold on. Let, just give me, give me a couple hours. I'll get this fixed. Or they'd say, give me a day, and then an hour later, it'd be done. I was like... Yeah. 
Uh, I was on the sidelines for most of the tooling part of this. I did the back end for graphics and so forth, and then went on to do financial stuff. But I just remembered a lot of these things distinctly. And so advice for anyone out there, um, if you're a producer or if you're a developer and you want your coder to make something for your tool, tell them. If you're a coder and you've made something, uh, you've added things to tools, you should probably at least once a week go stand behind your developer and watch them try to use your tool without talking. Don't don't give them suggestions. Just watch them and make notes. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot of terrible things that can go on. There's a lot of other little improvements that came about in the uh, programs because I was the one having to use them. <laughs> so it, it turns out using a program is very different from designing one. And when you've started using it, you realize where your design was wrong. So there's a lot of changes that came about that way. I think one of Redcoat's particular joys was color. Um, yes, yes, that was a fun one. So, because originally it was all gray. Everything yeah. was gray. So you'd be like, okay. For, for the AI editing. Yeah, so for any, any boss character, for instance, you'd have... Bosses weren't necessarily created of just like one specific node of AI. They'd have like several different parts that all interact with each other and then they'd have to call each other. And so they'd actually be embedded within each other in like windows within windows, within windows, like seven, uh, seven layers deep. Like the, the most basic boss in the game spanned like two pages like written pages worth of things that just say multiple action x and y multiple action uh, q then z multiple action z z then x plus y then da 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 da, da. just going on forever because it's something moving around the screen tracking the player firing bullets those bullets had their own ai that would do their own thing most of them fired straight but he also had missiles that turned so they have their own ai he would inevitably hit you know 50 percent hp and flip to a different ai all sorts of crazy stuff on the ai and all of it was in these big gray windows that were embedded within each other. And yeah. so that meant that going from one piece to another, you couldn't really tell which one was which unless you counted, and then you'd lose count. And even <laughs> yeah. if you could count, and even if you did count, after three hours of doing it, you'd just look at it, and it just all blurs together, and you have yeah. no idea what it lo- what it, what's going on. One of the biggest culprits for this was probably choose one at random. Yes. Oh, dear God. you choose one at random, and then each random choice was a multiple action. So it's like, which set of actions am I taking? And then inside those multiple actions might be choose one at random again. Yeah, so you'd have something like, choose one at random, and then it would say, you move to four corners. It would be... But it would be multiple action, move to top right-hand corner and move and choose one at random, fire at player, or move to one of the corners. You're only three layers deep. I was doing this, and I was looking at these things, and I forget Bleeding his if, eyes out. Yeah, and my eyes were basically bleeding. Um, but I was like, oh, I could do this. And then Santa shows up and is like, oh, hold on, dude, don't, don't. Please, let me have at this. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how it came about or how much warning you had that the change was coming. Well, I remember when you were doing it because you uh, you basically started helping work on the AI for level two. If, no, the the second boss, if I remember correctly. You, you helped with the AI on that. And yeah. when you did, you were just like, I cannot use this. No, no, no. <laughs> I can't tell what belongs to what. Yeah. 
Yeah, because that would have been before the redesign to how AI movement patterns worked, yeah. which they were originally designed with the idea that you could give them to an enemy and then they'd follow it on their way down the screen, right? Because I was thinking standard issue shmup, you know, an enemy spawns here and then... So it's a bunch of effectively movement vectors, which are basically little pointed arrows that say you go this far this way and then you go this far this way. And the idea was you could just stick them on a bunch of enemies and so if you had a bunch of enemies with the same AI movement pattern all lined up, they'd move in sync. Yeah. And that was not used. <laughs> and then all. I made it Period. so that Never. way... Uh, the air movement patterns sent things to specific corners and all of a sudden they were used all the time. <laughs> um, so when it turned to world coordinates instead of vectors, that's when AI movement patterns started getting used. And I made that change because that's what would actually be useful. And everybody is doing these very complicated, like, go to this location. Okay, when you get to that location, now do this thing or this thing or this thing. So it'd be like, you get to this location. Okay, once you get there, choose one at random. Here's five different attack patterns to do from that location. Okay, after you've done that, choose one at random, one of the other three corners to go to. Yeah, it was a... It was a complex process. But yeah, back on the subject. So the change that was made was just adding color and yep. sequencing those colors with the groups that they were related to. So like if you had a choose one at random and that had several several options inside of it, each of those options would be a different shade of the master color of that choose at random. Right. So for example, the choose one at random might be orange. And so it's got a solid orange for the first option, a paler orange for the next one, and then an even paler orange for the third one, and then cycle back to the, the deeper orange. And that's like a quality of life change. Like that's not necessarily a, like it did help with functionality, but not in the sense of making the program more efficient. It made the use of the program more efficient. Uh, there's another related story uh, with the road scripter with the graphics editing tab. It basically uses a tile-based system, uh, not strictly enforced. You don't have to put tiles in specific spots, but there's a grid, and if you don't use it, I don't know why. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the the original setup was uh, stuff kind of snapped into it awkwardly, and then eventually we got it so you could hold down control to have stuff snap into place so that way stuff would be there. But we had some uh, some friends come along to help design some levels. And they discovered a way that they could hold down a couple of buttons to effectively do what they called painting, which is where it would j just keep making tiles over and over again. The problem was every single little bit of movement to the mouse would cause it to make another tile. So they would, like, draw four tiles and get, like, a 4,000 tiles, which is clearly terrible. Yeah. Um, and, and to cause the uh, road scripter when you told it, hey... Build the physics for the level. It went. <gasps> no. <laughs> That's if you could even do anything after it crashed. <laughs> um, so I. How ended many boxes up, do you want? Twenty-seven yeah. million. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So I ended up uh, rejiggering it so that way there was an actual paint mode that worked the way it should. Uh, but speaking of physics, that was one of the other crown jewels of the tools. Yeah, that was my... I was so happy when that thing got made. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it was early. Um, it was... So, uh, Dragon Coder made the base of the road scripter, uh, particularly the graphics tab. He learned some lessons there. Probably should not learn to program C-sharp by making an important tool, but that's what he did. <laughs> uh, tur turns out uh, your first C-sharp program probably should not involve you know, making large graphical objects out of smaller graphical objects. <laughs> it, for, for, for his credit, it worked. Um, but anyway, I worked on the physics tab for that, and the idea being that this would allow the player to define physics. So as you may recall, we said that this game takes place on a road that goes to the moon. And 
to have the road be meaningful, you have to be able to fall off the road. So our solution for this was hitboxes not on the road. So if you hit one of these hitboxes that was off the road, you would fall off the road and, and have that whole effect play, which would put you back on the road and take a chunk of your health. So the physics tab, I ended up deciding, I don't even remember why, but I ended up deciding to implement an algorithm that would automatically calculate physics boxes based upon the tiles that were placed in the graphics tab. This saved countless hours, as in I don't even know how to begin to try to count them. Well, basically what it did was allowed all of the designers on the game to build their roads about eight times longer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and probably. way more complicated without having to then also spend 16, you know, 16, 20 hours putting in hitboxes for those roads. And then, oh, I forgot the hitbox in that middle of the road. And now people could go over that, you know, pothole and not you know, get killed. Be like, oh, I need to adjust this section of the level. I guess I have to go adjust the physics. Nope, just hit the calc button. Uh, keep the slider to allow you to see individual steps all the way down so you don't see individual steps. Yes, because if you see individual steps, there's a couple hundred, like more than a couple two hundred of those yeah. <laughs> happening. So I remember Dragon Coder, I don't know why he made this, but he basically had this level that he made that was completely misaligned, unaligned tiles, and I had that to work with. So it ended up being a pretty solid, reliable algorithm for anybody making a road in the same way. And... Uh, so the, the process is actually pretty interesting. It goes through and it basically figures out where there are not road tiles, makes boxes, and then figures out what boxes it can combine into bigger ones. Um, so it's a two-stage process. But uh, that was kind of, that and the AI system are in my mind the two real crown jewels. Yeah, definitely. Those were the two most used systems. And um, the AI system in particular I spent many, many, many an hour just staring at, just working with. And the physics button, the physics button was... <laughs> Kept you from spending many hours staring at that tab. Yeah, it's basically the... One of them is great because of the amount of time. It saved a lot of time, but specifically the amount of time that could be spent working with it because of all of the functionality it had. And the other one was great because of the amount of time that didn't need to be spent working with it because it was really just as simple as push a button, you're done. A lot of tools that people make... They make tools to be used, which isn't necessarily the correct idea. The tool isn't made to be used. The tool is made to make things as efficient as possible. Yeah. Sometimes this is because it being efficient makes it more usable, and it needs to be used all the time. And sometimes the tool needs to be made more efficient by just removing the user interface because the user doesn't need to do this. They shouldn't need to do this. That's the point of that part, that tool. Like, technically, you could add boxes, and you needed to for diagonals, but yeah. uh, ooh, it saved you the bulk of the work. Yeah. But anyway, I think that's probably uh, enough about the tools. Yeah, I'd say we've covered this one pretty, uh, pretty well. Yeah, I wasn't there for most of it, so I don't have anything else to put. <laughs> uh, you, um, you, brought, you brought the fun. You brought the fun. It kept us alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, bring us to the sign-off uh, here real quick. But just to let you know, our next spot's going to be about the gameplay and the general design of the game. And uh, that's I'm, I'm probably going to be talking a lot during that one. I'm probably just going to be making pot shots from the side. <laughs> yep. So we're going to go ahead and sign off here. Santier, signing off. Dusty, signing off. And this is Redcoat, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.